Anytime a company wants to sell you on their product, often they'll, they'll offer you a free trial. Don't you love a free trial? I'll sign up for stuff I don't even want. If it's free, if it's free for 30 days, as long as I don't forget that I signed up for it, you know, they charge me later. But a free trial, it's an, it's an incredible thing. You can get 30 days of Netflix. You can get Hulu. You can get satellite radio. You can get Amazon Prime for a free trial. Skincare products, you can, you can buy a mattress on the internet, sleep on the thing for a year. And then if you don't like it, you can send it back. I don't know if you've seen this. Free trials are so great because they, on, on our part, right, they allow us risk-free to see if we like something, to see if it really is for, for us worth our money. And it's great for the company, of course, because from their perspective, they know you're going to like it. And if you get it for free for a month, a month's not going to be enough for you. You're going to get used to it. And eventually you're going to justify spending your money on it. And they've got you hooked now. Um, well, I've got, I've got a friend named Jared. He made this comment to me a couple of years ago, and it was, he made it almost in passing, but it's always stuck with me. He said, you know, I think, we, I think we kind of treat Jesus sometimes like he's on a trial basis, that we're just kind of checking him out to see how we like him, and we're not really fully committed to him. That stung me. That stuck with me, because I knew that at least in part it was true of me, that it's, it's very easy and natural for a person to come to Jesus in the same way we might come to Netflix where we observe the benefits and we weigh the benefits against the cost and then we decide if it's worth our while, if it's worth giving ourselves to. Am I going to sign up? Am I going to stick with it? In other words, I may love what Jesus has to offer me, but if the cost gets too high, if the cost is too abrasive, uh, then we might have a problem. I want the highest benefit at the lowest cost, and I tend to want to bring that filter into how I look at my relationship with God. Now, that may seem to be like a modern-day phenomenon. We're such a consumeristic-driven culture, uh, but it's not modern. It's not new. We just read about it in Luke chapter 9. It's actually something that Jesus encountered in his own day that people wanted to follow him, but they ran up against the true cost of discipleship, and it complicated the issue. We see it on display here in Luke chapter 9. We're given three quick, very quick snapshots of three different guys, right? that they're ready to sign on the dotted line. They want to follow Jesus, it, it appears. But in each case, Jesus lays out some very serious terms of discipleship, doesn't he? And what's interesting here is that Jesus doesn't display these terms in the fine print underneath. He doesn't hide the cost away, and it comes up later. He gives it to them up front. And in, in the strangest way, Jesus actually promotes the cost, there is in him no hidden agenda. There's no fine print. He even, he, he puts it out there in front of them, up front, and says, this is how it's going to be if you're going to follow me. Okay, so let's walk through it again really quickly here. It's a short story, packs a lot in, Luke 9, 57. We're going to read it again and then break it down a little bit. As they were going along the road, Jesus and his disciples are, are walking along the road. And someone comes up and says to him, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied and said, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then Jesus initiates, he says to another, Follow me, but he said, Lord, first permit me to go and bury my father. Jesus says, Let the dead bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God everywhere you go. Another also said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. And Jesus said, Nobody, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, what Jesus does here bucks the trend of someone who's trying to build a movement. 
doesn't it? I have to wonder, you know, we're reading over Luke's shoulder here. He doesn't tell us this, but I wonder if the disciples, you know, the 12, if they were watching this scene unfold and thinking, Jesus, what are you doing? These people actually want to follow you, and you're scaring them away. Jesus, you're trending. Don't ruin it. Sell them on the benefits, man. I mean, offer them a free trial. Invite them in. Tell them how great it's going to be. You're scaring them off. But Jesus knew what he was doing. And it's so abundantly clear. Jesus always knew what he was doing. But right here, he doesn't mince words. He doesn't hide the terms away. He brings them out front. And and the point, I think, is very clear. Jesus says, you can only follow me on my terms, not yours. And that's so significant for us to hear, that we can only follow Jesus on his terms, not ours. There's no cost-to-benefit analysis that we're supposed to uh, investigate. Is this going to be worth my time? Is this worth giving my life to? There's no trial basis. So we can try Jesus on and see how he fits, see how we like him. No, Jesus sets the standard up front. Jesus sets the agenda, and it's meant to feel abrasive. The terms are not easy. It's meant to feel abrasive. But even as I say that, you know, we read this story, and it's not just abrasive. It seems almost unnecessarily cruel, some of the stuff Jesus says here. I don't know if it strikes you that way. It's always been that way for me. And so I want to take a few minutes, just walk through each individual guy, each individual story here. We won't spend much time on each because they're short stories, but there's so much there that Jesus is, in a sense, trying to plow through. He's trying to get through some areas of the human heart that he's got to get through if he's going to have the whole heart, if he's going to have us as his disciples. And so walk with me real quickly through each one, and let's just see what's going on here, specifically. Look again at verse 57 with me. They were going along the road, Jesus and his disciples. Somebody said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So we've got up front a very ambitious guy. He initiates the conversation with a promise. Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, oh, really? Well, I'm homeless. Did you know that? And it's it's crazy for us to think about, even as we stand here. Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe. He is God in the flesh. He comes to earth, and yet he has nowhere to lay his head. He He doesn't own a pillow. The son of God himself, and yet he was living an impoverished existence. He didn't have anywhere to lay his head. On the day that Jesus died, everything he owned was what he was wearing on his back. And even that was taken away from him. They crucified him naked. And a couple of Roman soldiers took his garment and gambled for it to see who would take it home. He was not arousing success by the world's standards. And so when this man very ambitiously says, I'll follow you anywhere, Jesus says, you're going to follow me anywhere, even if it means poverty? Even if it means shame, even if it means being forsaken, even if it means being killed. And I think the overriding point here for this first guy, Jesus wants to say, don't romanticize this. You're going to lose your comfort. This is not a comfortable path I'm walking, and you're not going to experience comfort or glamour in the process if you follow me. Check the terms. Second guy comes along, verse 59. Jesus initiates this one. He says, follow me. And, And the guy obviously wants to or appears to, but he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Now, this one takes the cake for me right here in the middle. It just seems especially harsh. Uh, And I, 
I don't want to run the risk of trying to soften it, but I do want to remind you of this, that Jesus knows the condition of this guy's heart. If you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all the time, in every circumstance, Jesus could read people's minds. He always knew what people were thinking, what they were reasoning in their hearts, because that's part of his divine power. And so Jesus knows the motives and the secrets of a person's heart, and I think, this is me, I think it's unlikely that this guy's dad had just died, and Jesus is telling him to skip out on the funeral. That, is, that seems unlikely to me. What is more likely is that he wanted to go home and wait for his father to die so that he could take care of things at home, and then he would come and follow Jesus. Of course, one problem with that is Jesus certainly knew this, that his ministry was shortened. He only had three years at most, and by this point, less than that, that by the time this guy goes home and waits for his father to pass, Jesus may be dead and resurrected by then. He's missed his opportunity. Some scholars believe that this man, in his, in his motivation for going home was, go home and wait for dad to die so that I can collect my share of the inheritance, then I'll go follow Jesus. Now, we don't know that, of course. That's just an assumption. But whatever the reason is, Jesus sees right through it. Jesus pokes through it. He goes right through it. That Jesus looks at him and says, get your mind off of earthly things and devote your life to God's kingdom. Once again, you don't make the terms. You don't get to say, but first I'll go do. Jesus says, the terms are clear. You've got to follow me. Uh, Then we've got the third guy in verse 61. Another also said, I'll follow you, Lord, but first permit me to go say goodbye to those at home. Jesus said, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and then looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Is Jesus anti-family? What's so bad about this guy going home to hug his mom and say goodbye to his dog? I mean, what's the problem with that? Doesn't that seem like a reasonable request? Well, again, Jesus knows the condition of this guy's heart. We need to remember that. He knows what's really motivating him. But Jesus is also making a very clear and decisive statement about divided loyalty. And that's the issue at hand here for this third guy. There's a divided loyalty. Jesus says no one, after putting his hand to the plow and then looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. In those days, to to plow a field, you would have a yoke of oxen. And the plowman had to be both very strong and very focused because there was a little stake in that plow that would cut into the ground, and that would make your rows. And of course, if you've ever seen a farm, you see a lot of them around here, there are very clear rows all throughout the field, right? You know, you, you, if you mess that thing up, you mess up the whole field. And that was the risk here, that, that if the plowman turns and looks over his shoulder for some reason while these oxen are plowing, what's going to happen to his line? It's going to deviate according to his turn, right? The whole field gets thrown off. And Jesus' point, I think, right here is that his followers are to have an undivided loyalty, a a single-minded devotion. Looking back implies that something else has my attention, something else has my devotion. I want to follow Jesus, but frankly, I miss my old life, I miss my old friends, I miss the things I used to be and do. Whatever it may be, Jesus says you can't look back and maintain a straight line. You can't follow me fully with only part of yourself, with only half of your attention. Now, is Jesus anti-family? You know, there's, there's, there are beliefs, uh, there are people out there that think he is. Because, I mean, what we see right here seems pretty, pretty hard, right? Pretty hard line. You can't even go home and say goodbye. You can't even go home and wait for your father to die to bury him. 
Um, in this culture, I mean, you know, family's important to us. My goodness, I know it is. But it's really nothing for us like it was to the ancient Middle Eastern culture. In the time of Jesus, family was the absolute highest virtue. You didn't move away to, to follow your ambitions for life. That's why if you read the prodigal son story in Luke chapter 15, the son takes his inheritance and goes to a foreign land, and that was absolutely shocking to hear. No son would ever do that. You stay with your family, you devote yourself to your family, you take up the family business, you do everything you can to honor them. You never dishonor your folks. And yet Jesus comes along and he says something like this. This is in another scripture. Jesus says, no one who loves father or mother or spouse or children more than me is worthy of me. He cannot be my disciple. Is Jesus saying that family somehow is a bad thing? No, what Jesus is trying to communicate in that story, in that scripture, is that there is only one truly ultimate thing or ultimate person. Family is, of course, a great thing, a wonderful value, something we should cultivate and is precious to us, yes, but nothing, not even our family, can be more precious to us than Jesus. I mean, if he really is the Son of God, then he has, by definition, a divine right to stake that claim as the most precious, the most worthy of devotion of all people in the universe, even over my own wife and kids. And so what Jesus is doing here is not saying that family somehow is unimportant or that we should neglect family. He's saying you've got to quit dividing your ultimate loyalty. It's got to be to me first and to everything else second, no matter how good it is. You can't turn back and risk deviating from, what I, from the terms that I've laid out here. I am, I'm to be valued more than anything. So the hard question for me, we look at this scripture here, and I, you know, I, I read this for the first time maybe back in high school or at least college, and it's, it's as hard, maybe harder for me to read now than it was then. Because the hard question that I've got to ask myself when I look at Luke chapter 9 is, whose terms am I living by right now? Jesus' terms are my terms. Whose agenda is more important to me? Is it mine or is it his? A couple of years ago, I got really honest about this question. I actually got out pen and paper and made a list, and it was hard to do. I'm going to share a couple of things I wrote down, because maybe you'll resonate with them. I don't know. I, I, I wrote down at the top of the page, would I follow Jesus if... dot dot dot, And I just started asking myself some questions. Would I follow Jesus if it meant taking a pay cut and losing benefits, or maybe losing my job altogether? Would I follow him? Would I follow Jesus if it meant that my children had to attend a poor-performing school? Would I follow Jesus if it, if it meant moving to an impoverished country where there's no running water, no electricity? Would I follow Jesus if I didn't get to choose how I spend my weekends anymore? Would I follow Jesus if it meant I never got to watch sports again? Now, that's my thing. That may not be your thing, but you fill in the blank. If you never got to go hunting or shopping again, if you never got to... to look at your cell phone again, you didn't get to own a cell phone, Any, anything that may even seem silly to us, but it's a legitimate question, would I still follow Jesus if he took away my hobbies and the things I enjoy? Would I follow Jesus if it meant being lonely, if it meant that people didn't like me, if it meant being unpopular? Now, the point is not that Jesus actually demands all these things of us, but he could. The point is not that if I'm going to be a Christian, I've got to give up everything I enjoy in the whole wide world just to prove that I love God. No, no. 
But Jesus is well within his rights to ask me, to ask you, to command us to give anything up for his sake. We just saw it in Luke 9, right? We saw it on display. That Jesus can at any point come to me and say, Kyle, give up all your comforts, all your ambitions, all your desires, all your plans, and follow me. He can do that. He's God. And I just know the truth about me. I know that there's at least a portion of my heart that I feel this way, that I love Jesus and I want to follow Jesus, but there are certain things that are more abrasive to me than others. There are certain hypotheticals that make me uncomfortable that I might be tempted, at least in my heart, to say, Jesus, if you want control of my calendar, if you want control of my budget, if you want control of my lifestyle or how I spend my free time, that's going to be a problem for me. And in theory, of course, oh, I'll give it everything to Jesus. Yeah, but I know my own heart. Maybe you know yours. <laughs> there are certain things that are more abrasive than others that, frankly, the thought of giving those things up is, is very difficult. It puts a pit in my stomach. You know, some of us might be thinking, I, I, you know, I didn't sign up for that. I signed up for, for love and grace and happiness. I didn't sign up for sacrifice. You know, Netflix only asked for $10.99 a month, and, you, and Jesus is demanding my whole life. I kind of say that jokingly, but that's true. Jesus doesn't come along and say, give me a portion, give me a manageable portion here. Give me, you know, give me enough that doesn't cost you too much. Jesus comes along and says, he he says, give me everything. Give me your whole life. Give me all your excuses. I don't want any excuses. Just follow me. Those are hard words. That's what he says. Earlier in Luke chapter 9, if you still got your Bible open, in Luke 9, 23, one of my very favorite scriptures is an equally difficult scripture. Luke 9, 23, Jesus was saying to them all, so not just individuals he's picking out here. This is, a, this is an open call to everyone. Luke 9, 23, Jesus was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross every day, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, But whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Now that does violence to my nature, y'all. Because I know if, if 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 it were independent of God, if it were just up to me, I would not deny myself anything. If I didn't have to, I would not take up my cross. I would not willingly walk into suffering if I didn't have to. And yet Jesus demands it. Jesus says these are the terms. Jesus doesn't give us any wiggle room here. And so the question for me, the question for us, why is Jesus so adamant about these terms? Why, why, why does he make it so abrasive without apologizing or trying to soften it for us? And you know what? He just gave us the reason. And I, I want to encourage you guys in this. If you're like me, you're feeling pretty sorry about yourself right now, right? I'm not, I, I mean, I don't live this way. I'm not fully committed. I, you know, and, and I'll just say this. I, I, I'm sure that none of us are fully committed. What does that even look like? What does it mean to be fully committed to God? What are you, how, many, how many hours a day of Bible reading is enough to be worthy of God? How much prayer is enough? How much giving of a, away of your resources is enough to be worthy of God? It, seemingly, it's a never-ending thing, Right? And we can feel terrible about ourselves, but Jesus tells us why the command is so abrasive. He tells us why he raises the bar so high, and it's not something negative. It's something actually very positive. If we don't get this part, you're going to get crushed underneath the weight 
of this expectation. Okay? If you say, I want to be a good religious person, so I'm going to give everything I can for Jesus, that's a very noble thing to say, but you'll get crushed if you don't understand the why. And he tells us the why in what we just read. Look at Luke 9.24 again. We just saw it. Luke 9.24, Jesus explains his purpose. He says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits his very soul? Jesus is saying this is a matter of life and death. To follow him, to be his disciple, it's not a matter of preference, of weighing out the costs and the benefits. Jesus says this is life and death itself, and Jesus is not trying to ruin your life. He says, I came to save your life. I'm not trying to ruin you. I'm trying to save you. Jesus said it plainly in John chapter 10. He said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I came that you might have abundant life, Jesus said. That's his purpose. And the point is clear that that abundant life comes on his terms, not on ours. That's why he's so adamant about it. That's why he wants it for us is because Jesus knows what's best for you. He created you. And no avenue of self-preservation or selfish comfort-seeking or selfish ambition is going to get me the life that Jesus promises me. In fact, Jesus says it will only lead you to death. You will lose your life in the process in your attempt to save it. Only if you lose yourself for my sake will you really have it. And that is such a backward way of thinking. But that's the, that's, that's the abrasive reality of the gospel, that when we come to Jesus, we come and we lose ourselves in order that we might find something in its place that is infinitely better. The terms are hard, but the promise is wonderful. It only comes through losing self in order to have Christ. Now, how do we actually do that? I mean, how do we come to that place? Let me encourage you something that I needed to hear over and over for years and years, and maybe only now am I starting to turn the corner. You can't solve this problem on the surface. You can't do what I typically try to do, which is to say, man, I'm just going to go to church more. I'm going to read my Bible more as a matter of discipline, and this is going to just magically happen. I'm going to watch TV less. I'm going to try to get some distractions out of my life. Those things are all well and good. I support those things. But Jesus wants you to know that this is a heart issue. It's not a surface issue. You don't solve this problem on the surface. You don't solve it by simply making a few rearrangements in your life. You've got to get down to the very heart. Jesus tells a story about this. It's a tiny little parable. You don't need to turn there, but it's in, it's in Matthew chapter 13. He tells this little bitty story about the heart issue of discipleship, where it's got to come from for us if it's going to make a true difference in our lives. Let me share this with you. You may have heard this before. This is from Matthew 13, verse 44. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and then he hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. That a person discovers a treasure of such transcendent value to him that he gladly, you notice the word joyfully, with joy, he goes and he sells all of his possessions. He gets rid of everything to his name in order just to possess that field and just to possess the treasure that's within it. And that right there is the heart of it, Jesus says. That for us to be awakened to Jesus, 
awakened to his grace, it completely shatters everything we've ever known. It shatters all of our categories. It shatters all the things that we value or the things that we think we value or that our culture values because we've come to see something infinitely greater, something of supreme worth. And the point is now that if it costs me everything, I'll gladly give it away. Not as an act of of self-destruction, but as an act of outrageous joy. Why wouldn't I give everything away if it meant possessing this treasure? That's the point. If I've got to lose it all, it, it in a sense becomes, like Paul said in Philippians 3, it's like rubbish to me now by comparison because I've found the surpassing value of knowing Christ. And so when Jesus says you've got to lose yourself for his sake, he's not calling you to self-destruction. He's not calling you to a life of abject misery. And you just got to grin and bear it because he's God. And you don't want to go to hell, right? So you just got to, you just got to grin and bear it. No, Jesus is saying I'm calling you to life and even joy. But it's a backward kind of joy. It's a backward thing that that our our nature doesn't understand, and that's why we've got to come to Jesus to find it. Now, how do you know this is true? I mean, it's a pretty pretty outrageous claim Jesus is making here. And it's not one of those things that you can, you know, trial basis this thing out. You know, I'll just try it on and see how how it goes. No, Jesus says, you put all yourself into this, you give me everything, and then what you'll find is life. How do we know he's telling the truth? Well, here's how. In every, in every religion, the idea is you submit yourself to God. Why? Because he's God. He's bigger than you. He created you. He's wise. You're not. He's big. You're small. You submit yourself to God just because he's God, and you're not. And that makes sense. It's logical. In societies, most societies function this way, that the big and the rich and the powerful, they make the decisions, they set the agenda, and everybody else, those without power, have to conform to it. They've got to give their lives, in a sense, to that. They really don't have a voice. In a lot of relationships, relationships function this way. You may have been in relationships like this, where one person, in a sense, holds more power, more control than the other. And it's very easy in relationships for that person to say, you conform to me. You change for me because I have the control, the power. Uh, Your life for me. That's what powerful people do because they have the right to do it. Do you know what what, what, what the heart of Christianity says? The message of Christianity is that God himself looks upon us and says, my life for you. Not your life for me, my life for you. I mean, that's what Jesus said about himself. Jesus comes to earth, the very son of God, the perfect man. And he says, the reason I came is to serve you and to give my life a ransom for you. This is God in the flesh. This is Jesus who has every right to say, conform to me, change for me, give your life for me because I'm big, you're small, I'm powerful, you're not, I'm wise, you're not. I'm God, and that's the end of the story. He has every right to do that, because that's true. He's God. But Jesus himself comes to earth, and the very thing he tells us to do, deny yourself, take up your cross, Jesus did it himself. He denied himself. He took up his cross. He carried it to the place of the skull, it was called, where he spread his hands out and died for you. Jesus on the cross sent the resounding message once and for all. Why should we follow him? Ultimately, not just because he's God, that would be enough, but we follow Jesus Christ 
Because he looks, upon, he looks on a world of sinners. He looks upon a world of people just like me who could never deserve his grace. And he says, I'll gladly give my life for you. That you might now give your life for me. No one else would ever do that. No one else could have ever thought of that. Certainly not God doing it. And yet that's the heart of Christianity. And see, when we recognize the, the infinite worth of Jesus... When we think about all that, that, that he's given to us in the gospel of his grace, how could any lesser thing hold sway in my life by comparison? If we think about how, how sinful we were, how lost we were, and all the misery that Jesus had to go through in order to grant us forgiveness, in order to give us life, when we think about the grace of God, which we cannot earn, and yet he's lavished it freely upon us, our cup overflows. When we think about the fact that God has given us a new heart, he didn't just promise us heaven one day and leave us unchanged. No, he's brought a transforming spirit into our lives that he might make us new and change the way we live. When we think about the fact that the unfathomable riches of Christ are reserved for us for all eternity and we will reign with him in heaven forever and ever. When we think about those things, why on earth would we hold on to our own agenda in favor of his. Why would I say, Jesus, I like what you have to offer me, but you can't have this? It doesn't make any sense. See, the, the, the Christian faith is this wonderful exchange where we do lose our lives. And that sounds so risky and that sounds painful, and it is. We have to walk away from the things that we, humanly, that we value, the things that we even love that, uh, that run counter to God and his will and his heart. We've got to leave those things behind and now receive something else in their place. But the thing that we receive is Jesus. We lose our lives, but we receive his life in its place. That's the treasure that's hidden in the field. The cost may feel great, but the reward is infinitely greater because the reward is Christ himself. And so the challenge for me, this is the challenge for me. I'm just going to pass it on in case it applies. I think it probably will. What are the terms of my faith? That's a question we need to ask. What are the terms of my faith? Are, are, am I treating Jesus on a trial basis? Am I constantly measuring out the cost and the benefit to see where I land, to see if I'm going to follow, to see if I'm going to stick my foot across the line? Or am I all in? Am I holding back or am I all in? Is there anything in my life that's just off limits to him? He can't have it. And even if it seems silly to say it out loud, I encourage you to say it, at least to yourself. Jesus, you can't have my weekends. You can't have my free time. You can't have my binge watching. You can't have, or whatever it may be, you can't have my cell phone. You can't have my family. Whatever it is, if we say, Jesus, you can't have it, then we're drawing the line, our line, not his. And Jesus says, you can't follow me. You're always going to stop short. There's always going to be an excuse. There's always going to be something that holds you back. It doesn't mean he's going to demand it, but he needs to know that our hands are open, that the check is blank for him, that it's his. So my encouragement is this. Take whatever that thing is and just search your heart to know it and hold it up to the light and the glory of Jesus. I mean, really, think about it. Weigh it, weigh it out. Hold it up to the light of Jesus Christ and say, does it really compare? Does it really compare to him? 
to who he is, to what he's done for me? Because Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart's going to be there. Your heart's going to follow your treasure. And if I'm holding on to anything else that he just can't have it, then my heart will be divided. My loyalty will be divided. I'm trying to plow with my eyes back over my shoulder. Jesus said it doesn't work. Do, do you and I, do we treasure Christ to the degree that we could open up our hands and say, Jesus, if you want it, you can take it. It's yours. That's what it is to lose your life. Not that he actually will necessarily. I don't know. I don't know what Jesus is going to call you to do. I really don't know. You, you probably don't know either, right? In future days, Jesus may call you to any number of things that will be abrasive and difficult. And so that's the heart that I'm, I'm hoping for you and I want for myself, is that the heart today will say, Jesus, it doesn't matter what you ask me for in the future. It's yours already. The check is blank today. And I will follow you no matter what. I mentioned the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3. He said, I have suffered the loss of all things because he was a Christian. And he said, I count those things rubbish by comparison in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He did lose it, and it was meaningless to him in the long run because of what he got in its place, the treasure in the field. Jesus does not come to ruin you. He comes to save you. It hurts because it means leaving behind the things that don't measure up. It means leaving behind the things that, uh, that keep us divided in our devotion. But if he gave his life for us, that we might have the promises, that we might have his life in its place, then nothing he asks of us could be too great by comparison. Let's pray that he would make our hearts more this way. Father, I will confess this morning that I've got an agenda. That I've got lots of things that I want, things that I enjoy, things that um, I don't want to give up. And Lord, I pray that you would give me a heart to see the, the line, because a lot of those things are good things, my family. But Lord, if, if there is... If I've crossed the line in my heart of idolatry, of loving something, anything more than I love you, then, Father, I pray this morning that you would root it out, that you'd show, show, show me what it is, um, that I might hold it up to you and see that it does not compare. Father, would you do that for all of us this morning? that we would recognize what we have in Jesus Christ and that, that whatever terms we've laid out there for ourselves, that, that Lord, those, those would just crumble and fall apart and that we would open our hands freely and fully to you. We will follow you wherever you go. Father, I pray that that's not just an insincere line, but that it's the, it's the cry of our hearts today not just because you are God and therefore you deserve it, Lord, but you have earned it through the giving of your own life. Lord, you've done everything that you might possess us and call us your children. So, Father, this morning, make us humble, trusting, loving children that we just open our hands to you. It's all yours.
And Father, I pray, I pray this truly, that we would actually become better families with this attitude. When we don't idolize our family, when we treat our families simply as a gift from you, that we'd actually become better dads, better moms, spouses, children. Because our hearts are in the right place. That we become better employees, better stewards and managers of our finances, better stewards of our time. Because our heart's in the right place. Our heart's given to you. And, and Lord, you're free to use it however you wish. Father, this is, this is a heart issue, and I, I pray, Lord, that you get down to the heart of, a, of us um, because we will, not, we will not follow you, Lord, with just good intentions and good words. The, the men in, in Luke 9 had plenty of good words. Father, you want our heart. And I pray, Lord, this morning that for, for any of us right now that we know there's a tension, there's an abrasion, there's a division, that, Lord, you'd meet us in that place, um, not, not in anger. Lord, we know that's not your heart. Your heart is grace. You, you want life for us. And therefore, Lord, you've got to do your work on our hearts. So, Father, show us what life and grace really are in full-hearted devotion to you. Make us your disciples this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.